Welcome to another classic episode of the Good Lion Podcast. In this episode, we dive into a very challenging topic. Brian and I had a conversation with Wesley Town, a pastor and leader who is currently in this season focusing his efforts on speaking and teaching on suffering and mental health. At the time that we recorded this episode in 2019, we had actually just found out about Pastor Jared Wilson's tragic suicide. And so we thought, man, this is a topic that we need to discuss. Like, Depression is not only affecting Christians, but it's also affecting pastors and ministry leaders as well. And so in this episode, we get raw and real about the problem of depression for Christians and what Christians can do to face it. I think it's a great conversation that still holds up. So with that, let's dive into this classic episode of the Good Line Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I am one of your co-hosts, Brian Higgins. I am joined, as always, by my good buddy, Aaron Salvato. Aaron, how you doing today? Hey, Brian. Good. It's good to be here. Good. It's good to be here with you. It's good to be tackling this subject together. It's good to be able to work through things like this in community. If you're listening right now, you're reading the title already, but... We want to give you a little bit of background as to why specifically we felt now was a good time to talk through issues of mental health, issues of depression, issues of how those things affect Christian leadership and how the church should respond to issues like that. So I'm, I'm sure that the news of the passing of Jared Wilson has gone out throughout Christian circles Aaron and I saw this. Jared Wilson, if you don't know, was the founder of Anthem of Hope. He was the young adults pastor at Harvest in Southern California, the church that Greg Laurie is the lead pastor of. He spoke very deeply to issues of mental health, issues of depression, how that affects leadership, how that affects Christians in general, was a really powerful voice within that community. And unfortunately passed away through suicide a little yeah. over a week ago from the time that we're recording this. And really it just sent ripples and, and shockwaves throughout the Christian community. It left many searching for answers, r having questions rise up that maybe they didn't even know they had those questions before. Mm -hmm. And it led to some conversations between Aaron and I, where we looked at the situation and we were shocked, we were saddened, we were confused, and we were just looking to process all of this together and, and to process not just issues surrounding one person, but rather the bigger issues that that one situation brings up and looking to some bigger questions. We turned to social media. We asked you guys, what questions do you have? You provided some great questions surrounding this subject. And when Aaron and I looked at these, we realized we were not the right people to no. answer these. <laughs> so we've, we've brought in a good friend, Wesley Town, host of the Better Days podcast. Uh, Wesley is joining us here live. Wesley, how you doing today? Good. How are you guys? Doing, doing well. well. <laughs> we're glad to be with you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's great to have you, Wes. We, we feel like you're an expert on this. You have experience that we don't. And so, yeah, I just think it's so important to have voices on here that are more well-informed than we are on issues. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's around a tragic, heartbreaking event and so many prayers and 
love go out to Jared's family, his wife, his two little boys. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the start of this is, man, we we have to rally around people's families that are going through a situation like this, so much heartache. Mm-hmm. And they, they too probably have many questions, maybe not necessarily the same questions that people outside of the context are going through and asking, but it's a long process to work through something as devastating and heartbreaking as what their family is going through. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wesley, we're referring to you as someone with more experience in this field, someone with more knowledge of this. Can you give kind of the the two minute version of some of the experience that you have with this and, and, you know, the, the work that you've done already in this field? Yeah. So kind of out of my story, my wife and I, we planted a church in college town in Oregon that grew to over a couple thousand people in a very short time. And she has dealt with major medical conditions for pretty much the extent of our relationship. She was almost paralyzed in a car accident. Wow. She was in an additional car accident five years into our church plant, which led to five years of surgeries. She had a cancer scare in the midst of that. She was diagnosed with a major brain condition. And also, planning a church that grows really fast is amazing, but it's also really intense. And during that time, I dealt with anxiety, and I have on and off most of my adult life. And so, chronic stress... And in the midst of that, I learned that many pastors, particularly of younger, fast-growing churches, also are dealing with the same type of things, anxiety, chronic stress, trying to figure out margin, and life within that kind of maybe intense, high-achieving, overworked, heavy emotional, carrying a lot of weight type of environment, and a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, panic attacks, those types of things are actually quite common. And so I think all of that spurred me on to begin to teach on this stuff and study it, research it, podcast on it, Mm. and write as well. I think I just had a burden to help people, encourage people, educate people, because I saw a lot of false cliches, false ideas, hurtful things. In America, we try to fix people's problems instead of actually love them, listen to them, help them. So the way we relate to pain, suffering, mental health is sometimes awkward. We're intimidated. And I felt like just the church and Christianity in general, I thought we could do a better job and be more like Jesus and have a more in-depth, informed understanding of all of these. I have three degrees, two graduate degrees. I've studied Mm. all kinds of subjects. Some of my favorite classes in graduate school were counseling classes as well. And so this is a huge passion of mine. I started a podcast called Better Days. It's about mental health and suffering and what it means to be human and follow Jesus. And so we talk about all all forms of mental health, suffering, relating to people who are suffering. And I'm also writing on these subjects as well. So that's just a brief summary story background for you guys. It's awesome. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) Thank you. That's so good. Part of, I, I alluded to in the beginning that Aaron and I felt like we're not the right people to weigh into this completely. And to some degree, I 
I want to be able to kind of act in this podcast as as the voice of the ignorant, yeah. uh, because I do feel so ignorant to a lot of these these different topics. Like e- even if this recording never went anywhere, I'd be excited just to yeah. talk with you and, and learn in, in this one on one on two setting, I suppose. But yeah, we're, we're just so glad that we can talk through these things with you. I guess to just start diving into the questions, one of the things you were talking about was sets of circumstances that are common for leaders and pastors, like specifically young churches, fast growing churches, like all of that makes sense to me. But I had never thought of it that way before. And, And for so many people, the very idea that Christian leaders struggle with mental health conditions is like a a shocking or perhaps even like a scandalous thing. Why do you think that shock is there? Why do you think that's so mind boggling for people that leaders might be dealing with conditions like this? Yeah, great question. I think we've created false ideas and expectations around spiritual leaders. Hmm. They are humans, just like everyone who's listening, and they feel the same pains of being human in a broken world. I think we need to change the narrative around mental health. It's incredibly complex. We have too many false ideas and cliches when we talk about it. And so things like, you know, a leader struggling with a mental health condition, uh, it's shocking because we are not informed and sometimes in Christianity we give oversimplified answers to complex realities like anxiety, depression, chronic stress, etc. And so I think many times we look at these as just solely spiritual issues. So man, a pastor must not be reading his Bible, praying, trusting God. Hmm. Why are they choosing depression? And so we think like that and we think these are all directly related to like some spiritual deficiency. When in reality, they're often pictures of just being human Mm. in an imperfect and broken space where life is not easy, whereas Romans chapter 8 says we groan, we struggle, we feel pain. Just a few examples to throw out to kind of normalize some of this stuff. Many of us, we look at the life of Jesus. We obviously, he's the central person in our faith. He's the foundation. He was perfect. And he lived a life on this earth for a little over 33 years. And how we describe Jesus, maybe in the American church, possibly is different than the way he was described in the Bible. So in Isaiah 53, Jesus was described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We don't often think of that, right? Like, wow, Jesus constantly felt the, the terminology behind this could paint the picture of mental and emotional anguish. Jesus was a man who felt mental and emotional anguish. Yeah. And then we look at a guy like Paul. Paul had daily anxiety for churches. He said that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And he talked about his own anxiety on multiple occasions. He was human. He felt the reality of brokenness and struggle and living life in this imperfect space. Job, the whole book in the Old Testament, he was severely depressed and despaired of life itself after a series of tragic events took place in his life where he lost basically everything. He lost his kids. He lost his wealth. He lost his employees. He lost his land. He lost his health. And his wife said, curse God and die. And then in Job chapter three, he's utterly depressed. He says, I wish I was never born. And he he really was in a, a deep state of depression and despair. Yeah. And so 
I, I say all that because I think it begins to help us to paint a picture, maybe in the Christian space, that heroes of our faith, they too felt these types of struggles. And I, I don't often think we make those ties. Even somebody like Charles Spurgeon, who's known amongst pastors and Christian leaders as maybe one of the greatest communicators in history of Christianity, he struggled with depression from his early 20s, I think either 22 or 23, until the day he died. So much so that his church had to send him away every year for for multiple months at a time to the French Riviera, kind of a cool place. But he went there because he was dealing with a lot of emotional weight. And they said, we would rather have Charles Spurgeon nine months out of the year than somebody else 12 months. Wow. You know, it's interesting that you're bringing out the humanity of the biblical characters. And especially, I think, putting Jesus in the mix with that is so important. I remember listening to a sermon by Tim Mackey where he was focusing on Jesus's night in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Tim related, you know, that famous scene of Jesus sweating drops of blood and he was saying look at what jesus is going through these are the symptoms of a panic attack like jesus is facing the cross and what he has to do and and he's literally he's having an an anxiety attack right there on the pages of scripture and i had never looked at it that way but i thought it was very powerful Mm. um as someone who has a wife who struggles with anxiety and panic attacks and friends who do and and even at times you know i have struggled with those things humanizing Jesus in that way was really powerful. And a lot of times I think we can be really hesitant to humanize the Bible characters because we want to look up to them so much. So true. And I think just in our Western culture, we within Christianity, we have maybe a, a weaker theology of what it means to be human, whereas the Bible has a very thorough and robust theology of humanity. That's why one third of the Psalms are Psalms of Lament psalms of weeping, songs, psalms of crying out, because that's the reality of human life in the world and space that we live in that's broken and perfect. And I think we need to get back to that understanding and we need to teach better within the framework of the church on these types of issues. No, and I think it's interesting that you bring up our Western culture because you know, I, I, I've spent a lot of time with different pastors. I mean, we all have. And something I've noticed with my American pastor friends, as opposed to, you know, pastors I've met in places like Ireland and England, there tends to be sort of this sort of this real strong appreciation for guys who work really hard and put in a lot of hours and, mm-hmm. you know, are willing to, you know, get up at 4 a.m. and work till, you know, late in the night, you know, at their craft, at preaching and everything and trying to balance everything. I I think, I mean, that would probably move me just this topic to my next question. The question that we got from Instagram was, what can we do to support leaders and pastors who carry heavy burdens and often work long hours? And I'll, I'll preface that question with one, a story of, I remember when I was listening to a sermon by Josh White, who's the, the lead pastor of Door of Hope in Portland, who is just one of my heroes. Like, and he just, he's such a tough guy. And, you know, he's, he just is really matter of fact in his preaching, brilliant guy, you know, kind of has a little bit of a hard edge, which I actually like. 
And I remember he was really open a few years ago in a sermon about his own anxiety and how for a couple years of pastoring his church, he would have these panic attacks and right before he was about to walk out on stage and preach, he would literally break down. And uh, it was shocking to me, like like we talked about the, the shock of learning this about our leaders, but it was actually really comforting to know that this is somebody who's broken just like me and and is somebody who relies on Christ for their strength. And and so what do you think, Wes, how can what can we do to support leaders and pastors who carry those heavy heavy burdens and and work those long hours? Yeah, I remember sitting down with Wayne Cordero, somebody that I look up to, love, has in in this space been a mentor to me. He told me Wesley, people love you so much, they'll kill you. Uh, And the idea behind that was that sometimes people don't realize how much a pastor's doing and they love you. They want to spend time with you. They want you to help them with, you know, every aspect of their lives. But we're, we're, we're only able to give out so much. Yeah. And I think pastors should have healthy expectations I think personally, and then those in churches should have healthy expectations on their pastors as well. Pastors should be encouraged to have margin, healthy rhythms. I think one of the things that we're learning is that pastors often work a lot, you know, six, sometimes seven days a week. And God didn't build us to work like that. We're not wired to be robots. We're wired to work hard, but then also to rest and have rhythms of rest so that we're able to do this for the long haul, not just a sprint, but a marathon. Hmm. I think pastors should be encouraged to invest into their own personal health. There's this idea sometimes that, you know, the most spiritual thing you can do is just give, give, give. This idea that dying to yourself means that you lose yourself and you don't really care about yourself. But that's really not the idea behind that. If you don't invest in your own health and your own spiritual well being, then you're not going to be able to take care of others and lead others as well. Yeah. So I think that investing into healthy rhythms and margin and health as a leader will help somebody to be able to do leadership or pastor a church in a more effective way and then longevity as well. I think that pastors should be encouraged to share when they're struggling. They need to have a good amount of vacation. Churches should think through this so that they can rest, rejuvenate, refill their tanks, not just run on empty. And so those are like pragmatic ideas. I also think that pastors should have counseling available to them as a benefit for working at a church. Mm. It's a heavy job emotionally, mentally. You're carrying a lot of really heavy emotional weight. And then you're wearing multiple hats. A lot of businesses, you're able to do one job and you you learn to do it really well. And that's the only hat you wear. But as a pastor, particularly even a lead pastor, you wear maybe more hats than most vocations in American society. Absolutely. And so you're carrying a lot. You're working really hard. In addition to that, you're also carrying your own stuff. Like Galatians chapter six talks about how there's, we carry the burdens of others, but then we carry our own burdens. And so within that reality, it's pretty heavy. So I think that there should just be an openness like, hey, like we're bringing you on staff or you're a part of our staff. We want to offer counseling, pay for, help you to cover whatever the out-of-pocket expenses are, 
for counseling if you're going through anything and you need help. Mm. I just think that sets up a different mentality and heart and an openness within churches. I think there might be, you know, some pastors listening who might think like, oh, you know, we don't really have it in the budget to cover, you know, somebody's expenses in this kind of area. Do you think at the very least something that could be great would be just to have a pastor on staff who was there to sort of mentor and counsel the other pastors? I just know for me personally, you know, I worked at a church for over a decade and there was a lot of informal kind of counseling meetings that happened, but there was nobody really who was keeping up with me and checking in with me and no one I could really go to on a regular basis to 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 kind of decompress and talk and get counsel. And I don't know. I just thought that would have been good. Yeah, I think that's a great idea, particularly if the person is knowledgeable on how to help people with these things. I think I'm also noticing as I travel a lot, there's actually a lot of churches that now have full-time counselors on staff or they Mm. bring in counselors Mm. um, to help their staff members when they need help or they're working through something. I I was at a recently a large church in Austin, Texas that has now a full-time counselor on their executive team that basically just coaches and helps all their top tier leaders um, and is always available to help them. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. And the staff members and leaders of that church have said that that individual has been life changing Mm. in relationships, in how they think, in things that they're processing and self-awareness. And so, yeah, I think there's huge advantages to designating a staff member to help people, love people, care for people and help people process tough stuff and heavy stuff in life awesome. Mm-hmm. That's so good. To, to this point, we've mostly been focused on church leaders and pastors, but you know, the majority of the people that are coming to churches, they're not leaders, they're not pastors, and they have a whole range of things that they're dealing with in their mental health as well. How can we start making a difference within the church body at large about the perception of mental health and specifically trying to work with people who have mental health issues. Mm. Yeah, I think this is such a huge passion of mine. Here's here's a couple thoughts. First of all, we need to talk about it. I read a couple stats out of kind of all of this that took place in the last few weeks. There has been kind of emergence of some statistics, especially by Lifeway Research that I think are alarming and important. 84% of people in churches agree that churches have a responsibility to provide resources and support to individuals with mental illness and their families. Overwhelmingly, churchgoers agree that suicide and mental health need to be addressed and that the church has a responsibility to be a leading voice in this conversation. Mm. I couldn't agree more. When you're talking about mental health, everybody outside of the church is talking about it. But the church remains somewhat silent on these issues. And so I think we need to bring this to the forefront of the church. I think it's an incredible opportunity in our lifetime to bring hope and help to a large percentage of people in our country and our cities. And if we don't talk about it and we don't become a voice on it, they're going to find help outside of the church. 
So, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because there's great help outside the church, but I feel like we get to be a leading voice and redemptive and point people to the hope of Jesus. And so I think we need to talk about it. We need to teach about it. We need to equip staff members to understand it and know how to relate well to people experiencing mental health. I'm doing one of my conferences in November at a large influential church in Portland, Oregon, and they are requiring all their staff members to be there because they want their staff members to understand all of these issues. In the conference I do, I get into detail on suffering and mental health and all the aspects of that. And so I think that's brilliant and so important. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have the opportunity to be a place of hope for hurting people And I think one thing the church is really good at is understanding humans and people. And so we need to, we need to become almost experts on these things so that we can help people practically and give people hope and encourage people who are going through these things. One in five Americans are dealing with a mental health issue right now, currently. Statistics have said that 50% of all people in our country will deal with a mental health condition in their lifetime. And so Generation Z, Gen Millennials and Generation Z, the percentage that are going through dealing with mental health issues is alarming. Mm-hmm. And the largest percentage of mental health conditions in American history is our youngest generation. Gen Z. And so we need to really become a leading voice on these issues. Mm. Yeah. And and it sounds like so much of what you're talking about just comes down to willingness, you know, that the, the resources are out there, the ability to train, all of that is stuff that can be figured out. The one thing that can't be excused is just silence. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so, that's so good. And just something that comes to my mind, honestly, is a lot of times we can talk about, you know, what we think needs to be done in the church, which is a huge conversation that we're constantly having. But the reality is, if that change is going to happen, it really comes down to a lot of times the pastors of those churches being willing to actually make those changes. And this just brings to my mind a story I'm a part of a large youth pastor community on Facebook of people from tons of different denominations. And I, I was reading a post by one guy who's, you know, he's my age. He's a older millennial. You know, he is very passionate about mental health and had seen just some of the concerns of just their church's kind of work culture of honestly workaholicism, just really going for it all the time. And, you know, pastors teaching, you know, two to three times a week and just lots of work, lots of community outreach, lots of serving. And he approached his pastor and was like, Hey, what if we, you know, read this book, the emotionally healthy church and tried Mm -hmm. to apply some of these principles to our staff and the way we do things. And, and the pastor just kind of looked at it and was like, I don't, I don't think that's really possible. It would, we'd have to change everything about how we do everything. And, and, and I, I don't know if you've noticed this, Wes, but I feel like I've noticed just a disconnect sometimes between our generation caring about this stuff a lot. And then oftentimes the older generations more just kind of being like, Hey, toughen it up, kid. Like just to keep powering through and praying and reading your Bible and you'll be okay. Yeah. There's definitely maybe a chasm sometimes between thinking. However, those in the older generations, they're experiencing these 
conditions and struggles at the you know same level, same statistics as younger generations, maybe younger generations more so, but it's not it's not a huge difference as far as the percentage of people that are dealing with mental health conditions, struggles. So I think maybe maybe it's more of like it wasn't it wasn't normal to talk about. There's still a lot of stigmas yeah. in the church, particularly, and then outside the church as well. But we have our own unique stigmas about the way we think of anxiety, depression, mental health in general. So I think we just, you know, even if we feel rejected or we feel like certain leaders don't care, I think we keep plowing the ground. And I, I believe that the narrative is going to change as we continue to talk about it and educate people and help people think differently about these types of things. Yeah. If somebody listening who is on maybe a church staff and they care about this, but they can't get other people on their staff to care, what's a good route for them to take to get help in this area if they can't find it at the place where they're serving? Yeah, I think it depends on their context. I think they can start reading, like you mentioned, Emotionally Healthy Church, Emotionally Healthy Leader. Those are great books. They're actually right in front of me. There's so many other resources as well. They can listen to my podcast at Better Days Podcast. You can check it out on Instagram and Better Days Podcast. It's a great podcast. Uh, is on all digital platforms. And so, yeah, they can listen to that. If they need counseling, they can reach out. Counseling's so healthy and really healing and helpful on so many levels and so i think they can make a difference yeah they can share their story because stories often are the most influential things to tear down walls and to change the narrative and so i think they can tell their story they can't necessarily convince people but they can live it out in their life Mm, that's good So the next question that comes in from Instagram is, are anxiety and depression spiritual problems or legitimate health conditions? Such a good question. Mental health is very complex. So again, we oversimplify complicated things sometimes. For example, when it comes to mental health, there's biological factors. So somebody could have a brain injury, a malfunction of a gland, they could have a genetic disorder, some sort of disease in their body could be kind of the catalyst for a depression or anxiety, stress, which would be more of maybe like a psychological factor, somebody's under intense chronic stress, actually is a common cause of anxiety and depression. You know, so there could be psychological factors with a person's thought patterns or developmental issues or growing up in a a really traumatic home that incite some of these things. There's also social factors, a person's society, relationships. There's spiritual factors sometimes as well. Somebody, you may be personal choices, struggling with guilt, struggling with doubt, dealing with their own personal suffering. And so I just say all of that to say mental health is complex. So just, you know, putting it in a niche of it's a spiritual problem is not necessarily a good way to think about it. Right. Everybody's story and everybody's complexity of context is different. And so you really have to understand that person, their story, what they've gone through to pinpoint maybe the underlying causes behind it. Let me just give a few examples maybe of how we've thought for so long about mental health in the Christian space. Maybe this will help deconstruct some of these perceptions or oversimplified thoughts. So for example, how we talk about anxiety is sometimes unhelpful. 
we paint a black and white picture we say okay anxiety is something we should never do and if you're anxious about anything philippians 4 6 and 7 you need to pray you need to trust god and god's peace will overwhelm your heart and be the solution for every form of anxiety well when we say that often we're missing a lot inside of the bible because anxiety in the bible is not that simple if you study the terminology for anxiety just in the New Testament, you come to find that the term anxiety is used in many positive contexts. Paul on multiple occasions talks about his own anxiety, and then we see other contexts as well where anxiety isn't necessarily looked at in the negative, but it's a part of being human. So the idea behind that is that it just refers to concern, that we are human beings, we care, we have healthy concerns. We would be robotic and not human if we didn't have healthy concerns. Then Philippians 4, 6, and 7, that context is dealing with obsessive concern, worry, where all of a sudden we're ruminating on something over and over and over again, and it overtakes us and it adds to the burden. And I think in that context, all God is saying is, hey, I'm a loving father. I can help you carry the weight of life and you can trust me. It's not necessarily a condemnation. It's more like, man, I really care about you. So you don't have to obsessively concern. But so in, in a way, when the Bible's talking about anxiety, sometimes in the Old Testament, it's dealing with like a traumatic situation, a crisis in life. It's, it's you know, has context like that. But anxiety in our modern terminology as a clinical idea is much broader than just thought life because you know, somebody could be dealing with anxiety because they went through a really traumatic situation. For example, somebody that went to war that has PTSD or somebody that was raped. We can't tell that person, hey, you just need to pray and trust God more and that will heal mm -hmm. your anxiety. That's not the right answer. The right answer is what you have been through is so difficult and suffering is not just local to one thing that you're going through it's really pervasive and so what you've gone through is affecting your mental health and that's a natural kind of consequence to going through trauma they need somebody to walk them through the trauma they've gone through with compassion care love and allow them to process and navigate that that's the answer to what somebody dealing with that type of anxiety because of those types of experiences in life need. And so I think we need to be very careful and thoughtful and obviously more educated on these ideas so that we're not hurting people. Because often, for example, when we talk about anxiety or some of the things we say about depression, we end up hurting people rather than helping people. Mm -hmm. And they try these things and they end up being very discouraged because it's not working. Yeah, that's, that's so good. I mean, I, I couldn't help but think about Job throughout much of what you were saying. And his friends were historically bad counselors because they kind of made this same distinction we're trying to ask for of, well, is it spiritual or is it just a health concern? And they were saying, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, you have this spiritual problem. And they were terrible helps for him because they didn't take into account all of the other factors like you're saying we need to do if you're not looking at the whole person then you can't really make a whole evaluation of what they're dealing with and and what the path forward might be exactly i mean it's funny job's friends they were terrible friends but they knew the bible they knew all the <laughs> theological arguments but they did not know god's heart and they did not know how to love someone who was suffering 
And I think that's a great example of how we can do better. We could be better educated. We could relate to people more like Jesus with a whole lot less judgmental, critical spirits and hearts. So, yeah, I think that's brilliant that you brought that up. And so I guess to carry on that theme, thinking through the idea of being a friend to someone who's suffering, one of the questions that came in was asking that, how can we be good friends to people who are currently dealing with suicidal thoughts? I I know that having led youth group, so many students were wondering how to strike that balance between, well, I want this person to trust me and I want them to feel able to share whatever's going on but I also want to do what's best for them. And and sometimes that might mean going against their wishes to bring in the proper help. What what would you say to that kind of a situation? Yeah, I got this question last night. I was teaching on mental health at a church last night and had a QA and a session. And my answer is there is a myth that basically states that if someone is suicidal, that you should not talk to them about it or ask them about it because it will increase the likelihood that is false and a myth. In fact, one of the best things you can do to be a good friend to someone who has suicidal thoughts or struggling with the idea of suicide because they feel hopeless, they feel worthless, is to gently lean into their life and love them and let them know how much you care about them and to listen to them. Hmm. They have found in studies that listening talking about what you're going through is actually healing. Uh, There are studies that kind of compare different forms of therapy and medication and such. And we've learned that talking about your story and what you've gone through and, you know, processing through that in a healthy way actually changes the brain. So listening to somebody is so important. Understanding what they're going through from their perspective And even, you know, we've learned in graduate school to ask questions to gauge the seriousness of somebody's suicidal ideations. And so I think that if you're a leader and you have some sort of spiritual authority, it's really good to learn. You could just Google online the the questions to ask to gauge the seriousness of somebody talking about suicide. Mm. Always take it serious. Never just, you know, hear somebody say that and then walk away because you feel uncomfortable, you don't know what to say, always take it serious. Mm-hmm. And you get to be kind of a, a help to help them reach out for help and help them to get help. And so you can kind of bridge that gap. If it's very serious and you're concerned, you can call a suicide hotline and they can walk you through what to do. Uh, also, whoever your friend is, if if they're scared because of these ideations and because they're serious, that is such a great platform, the suicide hotline to call, and they will help somebody who is struggling with suicide. And so definitely lean in, always take it serious, love them, listen to them, be understanding, be like Jesus would be to a person in that situation. Don't quote a bunch of Bible verses and give them all kinds of solutions. Just love them, listen to them, understand, be a bridge for help. Yeah, that, that's, that's so really good. good. I, I'm glad you brought up specifically the suicide hotline and the idea of reaching out beyond the resources that you might personally have. When do you think that moment comes when it becomes best to reach out beyond yourself? Is it simply when when you feel overwhelmed and trying to help that person or 
are there specific things that we could be looking out for where if a friend says this now's the and, and maybe i'm looking for too simple of a of a playbook but is there a clear line of when a friend says this this is when it's time to call the suicide hotline or to inform the authorities or something like that to make sure they're going to be safe yeah That's i a think great question you know if there is a concern you can call the suicide hotline and just say here's the situation i'm concerned for my friend and they can walk you through some steps so i think Yeah, I think you always take it serious. Mm, It's really, really good. This episode of the Good Lion Podcast is brought to you by CGN and the upcoming Calvary Global Network International Conference. Hi friends, Brian Broderson here, and I want to let you know about the CGN International Pastors and Leaders Conference coming up here at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, June 25th through the 28th. Our theme this year is the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And oh, how we need the Spirit of God uh, to be upon us in these days. So we're going to be digging down into that great text from Isaiah 61. We're going to be looking at all the different facets of it. we got a number of great voices that are going to be speaking to us. We're going to have times of prayer and worship and lots of fellowship and enjoying meals together and all kinds of wonderful things. So if you would like to be part of this conference coming up in June, uh, please get signed up today. You can do that at conference.calvarychapel.com. Once again, that is the CGN International Pastors and Leaders Conference, June 25th through the 28th. Hope to see you there. Here's another question that came in and uh, well, let me set it up with this. So we're talking about being good, being a good friend to someone who's suicidal. And now we'll look at the other side of the coin when someone is not a good friend. So recently this Sunday, Greg Laurie at his church did their Sunday service. And during that service, they were talking about Jared Wilson. This is, you know, just days after it happened. And so they were just saying, you know, yeah, we know we're going to see Jared in heaven. We're so thankful for that. And yes, things are hard here. And so their church on their website has a a live feed on Facebook. And so I popped in to watch it and they have a comment section, like a chat box section. And in that section, you had a bunch of people saying, you know, amen or throwing out prayers. But then there was a, there was a few people in there that were just, oh, it was so crazy. They were being antagonistic and basically saying, you know, this church is lying, Pastor Jared, you know, he sinned and this is his own fault and, you know, we shouldn't even be talking about anxiety. It's just demons and obviously he had sin in his life and he should have repented, but he didn't and this is what he gets. And it was honestly really disgusting Mm -hmm. um, and disheartening. And, uh, you know, I I think the question, the, the, the frame of mind that person is coming from is that, you know, if someone commits suicide, it's not like if a Christian commits suicide, it's not illness that killed them. It's their own sin. So that that's actually a question we got on Instagram. If a Christian ends their life, does that mean that they sinned or was it the illness that killed them? What do you think, Wes? Yes, I think that's probably a genuine question. The trolls that are following Greg Laurie, they're just perpetuating stigmas, like false mm. ideas and uninformed thinking on these subjects, I think Greg Glory has done an incredible job of walking with his community through a tragic, heartbreaking event. People naturally are going to have questions, and that's okay. Mental illness is real. 
So again, like I said earlier, the complexity of it is is something that we should understand because if we don't, we perpetuate an unlearned, uninformed answer toward these types of things. I think every person's struggle is unique. Everybody's situation is unique. Taking your life is never the answer. Even if you are in deep mental and emotional pain, there is hope and help for every person suffering. A lot of these conditions, all of these conditions are treatable. And so I would just say that train of thinking only perpetuates the problem. It doesn't help. And the way that those people probably were expressing their thinking, they sound more like Job's friends who were judging, who were defining everything Job was going through as a sin issue rather than just a human issue. I I would love for them to read Job chapter three and how he talks about he didn't want to live. He, He wishes he was never born. He wished that he would have died in his mother's womb. All of those things he said, he didn't want anybody to celebrate his birthday ever again. That wasn't a sin issue. Job wasn't expressing that in sin. He was expressing that in human pain because of devastation. So Job didn't take his own life because that's not the answer. There is hope. There is help. There is practical help and treatment for mental health conditions. So yeah, I think my answer may be not direct, but maybe yeah. painting a picture of how we kind of miss it because we sometimes right. are too definitive. Mm-hmm. Well, can can I can I throw out just some thoughts and I'd love to to know from you if you think that I'm on the right track or if I'm off cuz you know for me I'm an outsider to this kind of thing and so I'm just trying to parse through it. The question that they're asking is, you know, is this a sin issue or is it an illness issue? And the, the place my brain goes is maybe the answer isn't in, it's not an either or answer, but it's a both and. And I, the reason I say that is because I think so many times, so many people, their category for sin is just simply, hey, there's a list of things that you're not supposed to do. And if you do them, you're a bad person and you sinned. But the way that I understand Genesis and the way that I understand the scriptures is that sin isn't a list of bad things. It's this dark, destructive force that corrupts humanity and it corrupts the human genome and and not just, you know, our morality, but it corrupts our, our mind and our bodies and the earth itself. And so, you know, I see any mental illness as a result of sin. And when I say that, I don't mean like, oh, yeah, if you're struggling with mental illness, it's because you did something wrong and therefore it's your just punishment. I'm just saying as the product of a broken world that we live in, yes, sin is involved. Like, yes, the enemy is involved because he does come to kill, steal and destroy. But it's not something where we look at the victim of that and say, oh, it's your fault. You caused it. It's more of this is just the reality of living in a broken world. My aunt just died of cancer recently. She didn't get that cancer because of anything she did, but it is the result of this broken, sinful world. And I'm just thankful that, you know, death doesn't get the last laugh that, that Jesus, you know, he had her. She, she was in Christ. And the same thing, I look at Jared Wilson and I'm like, you know, that, that's a guy who I would say, you know, what happened to him was a product of our broken world. The illness is a product of the broken world. But I'm so thankful that Jesus is bigger than that and more powerful than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like to, if we think of, if we're, 
you know, defining sin in the context of everything that is contrary to God's original design and plan, then yeah, this is definitely contrary to the, God's original design and plan. But the the factors underneath the decision are sometimes really complex, and and I think that that's why it's hard to give a definitive answer because you just don't know what was going on, what created that choice the mental illness and the complexities behind that and so yeah i think we do live in a world that has so much that is contrary to god's original design and i think because of that we struggle we have pain Mm -hmm. we go through hard times we have illness biological you know in our bodies and mental illness as well and so yeah i think we need to we need to paint the right picture and i think yeah you you've said some pretty right on things that helped kind of paint that picture yeah not like necessarily like somebody's own sin is always the issue but the fact that sin has brought a kind of a degradation and an undoing of god's design and so we feel that that's that's romans 8 yeah is we feel that we live in that space we groan we look forward to God repairing and redeeming and restoring all that has gone astray and is contrary to his original design. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. I, I want to kind of lean into a little bit. You you began this question, Aaron, with with some of the trolliness that had kind of gone on. I don't know if trolliness is a word, but it felt fun to say. It's great. We coined it today. There we go. Only here on the Good Lion Podcast. To wow. lean into that a little bit and think about some of the the anger that came up. It's very easy to point at internet trolls and say, well, of course they're ridiculous. But to kind of bring it to more of a acceptable level, I suppose, but really to be able to dive into those same thoughts... This is probably the most ignorant thing I will say on this episode, but one of my reactions, I will say, mm. in in mm. the Jared Wilson situation was actually anger. I, I was angry at the situation, mm. and this is totally coming from an outsider. This is totally not understanding him personally, and I, I know that perhaps speaking in, in ignorance in something that you record and put on the internet is a dumb idea, but it, it sounds like from from what I'm hearing now and, and from thinking through the idea of sin being this destructive force rather than just something we try to pin on one person, is there something to be said for the response of, of, of anger at the situation? And and maybe is it just that anger is, is misplaced and, and rather than saying we need to find a person that we're upset with, we need to just be mad that the world is broken, be mad that sin has its effect here and now. And and maybe perhaps if we learn to be really bothered by the destructive power of sin, we might even be more hungry to try to advance the kingdom and usher in deeper righteousness. Mm. Yeah, anger actually is an element of grief. And we all respond to tragedy and heartbreak differently. And I think that there's no one way to grieve, contrary to the perception of some that think that there's a pathway for everybody to grieve. Studies have shown that everybody grieves uniquely, but anger is actually a part of grief. Mm. And so I think like all emotions, we have to think about and process and filter our emotions, you know, as we're reacting 
to heartbreaking situations in life. I always tell people all emotions are real, but not all emotions are healthy. At least the you know the the outcome of how we express those emotions, and so we really have to think through our emotions, and we have to process them in a generally emotionally underdeveloped culture. So yeah, I think we all grieve differently, and for you to feel angry, to feel heartbroken about somebody that is such an important person in in our community and space losing their life through suicide i think that's expression of grief and sorrow that needs to be processed through for sure yeah well i think to touch on that and then we'll get to our last three questions but to touch on that so this last week on thursday i lead a little i lead a little bible study in my community at a coffee shop. So it's this Bible study to help and encourage ministry leaders and volunteers, specifically in our context, it's youth group volunteers. And one girl at the study, we were talking about anxiety and depression. And so we were talking, I'm not sure which pastor it was, but it was one of the other pastors in the last five years that had taken their own life. And the, the pastor's wife was being interviewed and someone, you know, asked her, you know, are you, are you angry at your husband for, for leaving you and your kids? And she was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not angry because I know he couldn't control it. You know, it wasn't his fault. It was, it was the sickness that took him. And this, this ministry volunteer that I was talking to, she kind of was confused about that. And she was like, I just don't understand that. Like, are we taking away personal responsibility from people when we just say, you know, oh, the devil made them do it or the sickness made them do it. And I just wanted to ask you, Wes, because again, these are questions coming from outsiders, people who haven't experienced this stuff firsthand. I've never had a suicidal thought in my life. So my question is, what do you think? Like, where, where is the line and how can we walk through that line sensitively and with compassion and empathy? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I refrain from being really definitive on answering some of these things because I realize how complex it is. Yeah. And I hate to to repeat that phraseology, but I think it's so important to understand. Um yeah, I just don't I don't know the background. I know who you're talking about, but the the true background of what they were going through, what forms of mental illness they were struggling with. Yeah, I think again like there's biological factors that are proven to be behind some of these things that we're talking about. And so, you know, medications and biological factors and things that they're wrestling through, it's it's hard to give definitive answer. But yeah, there is a human choice element. You know, that's why we say taking your life is never the answer. And I think we just need to shine the light on hope and help and that there is tangible hope for them to live and their life is important and valuable and purposeful. So there obviously is a, a element of will and choice, but it's just hard to, it's hard to give a concrete answer because everybody's situation is different. Does that make sense? I'm sorry to yeah, yeah. No, be no, no, vague. No, it totally makes sense. And, and I think, I mean, just the place where my mind goes in my own learning on this is I think sometimes people can be very judgmental of someone who takes their own life, almost like, you know, just the, 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 like the, the way we think their situation is, is just like, oh yeah, you know, everyone has a hard life, everyone has it rough, but you don't see us committing suicide, you know, and this person just wanted the easy way out. And so they just woke up one day and thought, oh, you know, I'll, I'll end my life. 
And that just doesn't seem to be the case in, in the experience I've had talking to people who are suicidal. It's like this constant barrage of like oppression and Mm -hmm. these thoughts that are just constantly hitting them and, and burdening them. And in the same way that, you know, when I talk to people who have quote unquote normal struggles and it's like, oh yeah, you know, I, I struggle with lust and, and, you know, I get these feelings and, and I don't want to do it and, and I, I resist, but then sometimes it's just too hard and I give in. I look at it the same way. It's a much huger consequence ending your life. But it is a this, you know, it's it's a temptation and it's giving into a temptation. And, and oftentimes it's even beyond temptation. It's more just like constant oppression where it's like almost like an itch where you are just like, I have to scratch this or else I'm going to go crazy. And and to me, that gives me a lot of compassion for someone and not not judgment. Mm-hmm. It's it's oh, my gosh, I I can completely understand why somebody would scratch that itch. I just want to recommend for those of you who are thinking through this and asking these questions to listen to Kay and Rick Warren's story. Their son committed suicide to two of the most influential people in Christianity worldwide. And out of that, they've started a ministry about mental health. And particularly, they talk a lot about suicide. And so read Kay Warren. She's written articles on it. She has a lot of public venues that she's communicated on suicide. I think they have a really good, healthy, personal perspective as well. So I would listen to Kay Warren. She's actually talked about it the most, but Kay and Rick and their story of their son committing suicide. I think I think that will help people to understand some of the complexity behind yeah. this stuff. It's good. Mm-hmm. We no, got our last so three questions. So Brian, you got the next one. Yeah, thinking about the idea of there is hope ahead. I mean, your your podcast is called Better Days, thinking about there are better days ahead if we lean into the hope that God has for us and lean into the avenues of healing that he's given. When people are in the midst of those hard times, the idea that there might be hope ahead can be very difficult to grasp. And mm-hmm. and sometimes I know personally just being told by someone, well, don't worry, there's hope. It just frustrates me. And it's like, well, how do you know that? And like, you don't know what this feels like. So there, there's sometimes this easy hope that we try to give of like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to do the work to help you heal. But please know there's hope. Bye. And then we kind of move on. We don't want to give that like cheap false hope or the the hope that doesn't do the hard work of healing. But we also need to be able to hang on to the fact that there is true genuine hope ahead when we're in the midst of these difficult times and particularly for people in the midst of mental health issues. How do they keep that balance of staying positive, staying hopeful while also being genuine and real? Yeah, that's such a great question. I've thought a lot about this idea of hope and how it relates and translates to people that are suffering, going through really painful experiences in life. And so I've used a a phrase called honest hope. Honest hope to me is when you're going through suffering, it's hard. You're allowed to feel the pain. You're allowed to grieve. All of those things are right and healthy and they're spiritual. We see all those exemplified in scripture. So We can feel pain, we can struggle, we can say it's hard, we can grieve. At the same time, we can find hope in God's presence because God is not afraid of the messiness of our suffering and pain and the hardship Mm. of it. Actually, he loves 
to be present in pain. God is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's a psalm that I love. God loves to be close to those who are dealing with suffering and human pain. And he loves to help. The idea that Paul was praying about his thorn in the flesh, and then he basically said that, you know, when I'm weak, God is strong, and God is God's grace is sufficient in the midst of what I'm going through. The idea behind that is that God is there to help, and his grace is sustaining grace, meaning he gives you the strength each day to keep moving forward and to keep living out your purpose. And so I think we find hope in God's presence. We also find hope in purpose. That's one of the things that when you read about study, for example, depression, it's so important to not lose your purpose in the midst of your pain. And so to stay purposeful, to understand that even in our pain, we have purpose. And sometimes our pain becomes our purpose in the sense that Our story of suffering can be the most influential aspect of our life. We can help people and we can encourage people and we can love people and we can be compassionate in a way that maybe other people can't connect with in that same way because of what we've been through. And that's what Karen and I have tried to do. Our situation is really hard, really painful, really heartbreaking, but we've found hope and purpose and we try to be purposeful each and every day. And we also find hope in future redemption. Romans 8, we look forward to the day where all things are made right. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've thought a lot about that because as I've you know been a follower of Jesus and been inside of the church, I saw different pictures of hope painted. I saw rah-rah hope, which is basically like a cheerleading event that you're like, oh yeah, like I got hope. And then Monday through Saturday, it wears off and it's not very helpful. And then I've seen like pictures painted of like all conquering hope, almost like a militant hope where, you know, you just be tough and like hope conquers all your pain and it minimizes your pain. And so you're really not allowed to feel or grieve or say it's hard, but God never teaches us to minimize pain. And I think we get that maybe because we have this idea, Romans 5, James chapter 1, that we're supposed to be Mm. joyful in suffering. But in both those contexts, joy in the midst of suffering is a state of the soul oriented in a relationship to God and his redemptive work Mm. in suffering. It's not a false expression of happiness about the suffering that we're going through. It's not like, oh, you know, like I'm so joyful that I have cancer. This is amazing. That's weird, right? It's more like I have joy because God lives in me and joy doesn't mean that I'm going to be happy or be like a cheerleader. It may mean that I'm weeping and crying, but I feel the presence of God in me and I know that God Mm. redeems and works in the midst of suffering. And in that, in my relationship with him and his nature to be redemptive in suffering, in that I'm joyful because God uses it Mm. in my life. It's really, 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 really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The second to last question that we have is, it's a question about definitions of depression. And I'll, I'll say this to, to set it up. I, as a youth pastor, dealt with a lot of kids who struggled with, you know, what we'd call depression, you know, Brian, you also were a youth pastor. I'm sure you've seen a lot of kids who struggled with cutting and 
and, and depression. Mm-hmm. And so there's been times where when I've preached, you know, I've mentioned my own depression. And what I have said to the students is, you know, there was this time period after middle school where all of my close friends left to go to different schools. And so I went into high school feeling very left out. I didn't have a friend group. I was kind of a loner. And, you know, there was girls I was interested in and just was constantly facing rejection from every place and really struggling with my weight and my appearance. And and over time, it just morphed into this feeling of just uh, just very often constant sadness and looking in the mirror and hating who I was and just feeling like I was never enough. And I felt this weight on me for that time period. And so I've called that depression. But then when I think about people who actually are clinically diagnosed, it makes me think, and especially people who are clinically diagnosed and and then actually commit suicide, it, it makes me struggle and think like, maybe I shouldn't have been calling that depression. Maybe I should have just said I was sad. Maybe it's insensitive to, to call what I went through depression. When I think about people who've been through much, much worse than just, you know, having a difficult high school experience. So What's your opinion on that and just kind of the difference between being chemically imbalanced and having depression or or people who just struggle with sadness that's circumstantial? Yeah, maybe I can help define something. Sadness is not depression. Sadness is temporary and circumstantial and has an end point to it. Depression includes Mm. sadness, but it's not just sadness. Depression is much more than sadness. So somebody that's depressed may feel numb inside they lose enjoyment of things that they used to be passionate about, they used to love to do. Often they isolate themselves. There's sleep complications. Some people can't sleep. Some people sleep too much when they're depressed. So there's a lot of maybe descriptive signs of depression in a person's life. You can, again, you can Google those to get a more full explanation. But depression includes sadness, but sadness is not depression because depression is much more complex it's ongoing and again like the idea of chemically imbalance is a very layered conversation Mm. because there definitely is and can be biological factors underneath depression in fact there's so many studies and research that have been done about the food we eat and the gut brain connection how our gut microbiome and this the main there's a main nerve that connects to our our gut it connects our brain to our gut and so the foods that we eat actually affect our mood so i just use that as an example to say it's a very layered yeah. conversation but we do live in a broken world and people have biological issues that cause mental health brains don't always function Optimally, there can be hormone issues, malfunctions with glands, diseases, genetic disorders, you know, diet types of things. There could also be trauma, family of origin roots, sleep patterns, you know, all these type of things that could factor into somebody's depression. But I think, again, I think there's just a a healthy definition that can help us that, you know, sadness is not depression, but depression includes sadness. Does that make sense? So so do you Mm -hmm. think that, because that's very helpful information for me, and I'm sure there's probably a lot of people listening who maybe have done what I've done in the sense of calling their sadness depression. Do you think it would be better for ministry leaders who haven't struggled with clinical depression and and actually being diagnosed with depression to maybe use different wording when they talk about it from the stage 
in order to be sensitive to people or, or maybe to even prevent, you know, someone in the audience thinking, oh my gosh, he's, he has what I have. And then they go to talk to the guy and it's like, oh, well, actually, you know, I, I mean, I'm not diagnosed. I mean, I just, but I, I had a hard time between this, these years. What do you, what do you think? Yeah. I think we just have to be clear in our definitions. I think that, you know, we get the criteria for diagnosing mental health disorders from the DSM, which basically is really descriptive. And so it's describing all the symptoms. And in order to be clinically diagnosed with depression, you have to have a certain number of symptoms over a certain period of time. So, yeah, I think we have to be maybe better at defining. And yes, somebody can be very sad and have a number of other symptoms as well and be dealing with depression that's undiagnosed. So I don't think necessarily we refrain from talking about depression. We just need to be more educated around it. It's good. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so much was helpful in that. So, so good. To give the last question that we received, there are many who would make the case that if even a believer commits suicide, that the very act of suicide is an ultimate denial of the faith, or it is in some sense an unforgivable sin. And so the, the thinking for many would go that simply to commit suicide is to separate yourself from God and, and to be separated from him in hell for eternity. I guess not to assume in the question, but I, I don't believe that's what you would think scripture says. That's personally not, not what I believe scripture says, yeah, but for people who are making that case um, and specifically to try to make the answer looking at scripture as opposed to just personal experience, although the two should be interlocking and, and should work together in tandem. How would you respond to the case that some would make specifically saying, um, you know, scripture would demand that to commit that sin is to be unforgiven and to be separated from God. A simple answer for me would be that this is a false idea, uh, that the train of thinking in kind of this position is antithetical to the gospel. Mm. The gospel is good news of redemption and complete forgiveness of sin, past, present, and future. So what I do before I come to Jesus does not save me. And what I do after I believe in Jesus does not unsave me if we're genuinely followers of Jesus. And so, yeah, a decision maybe that isn't God's design isn't going to unredeem or unsave a person. I think we can't limit the scope of God's forgiveness by a human choice. And there's so many verses in scripture that would support kind of that position that forgiveness is total complete and we can't limit that do you want me to read a few i don't know if this yeah, will be yeah, helpful be no please so in john chapter 10 verses 28 and 29 jesus says i give them eternal life my sheep and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. I and the father are one. So we're in unity on this. The In the original language, John, the writer, he uses a double negative, which is like the most forceful way to say something. They will never, ever perish. 
Uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says there's no condemnation. That's referring to just spiritual condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God when we're in Jesus and basically list all of these scenarios and factors and in an illustrative way just to say there's really nothing in this world or or that angels or demons or any other factor can do to separate those who are a part of Jesus's family from Jesus. Yeah. And then in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, the Bible says that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee for our redemption. And the whole idea behind that is that when you sealed it, it, it in the ancient world, a king put a seal on something, an object that was his. It basically designated ownership forever of that item. And so when we're sealed by the Spirit, we are under God's care and in God's family and a part of being in a relationship with God permanently until the day of redemption, which means we will see that day. And so I would just say like the gospel in itself teaches complete forgiveness and no decision, maybe out of illness or maybe other factors behind it can yeah. lead to the unsaving of that individual. Now, that's a position. Other people have different positions. I would just say that that type of harsh judgment on somebody that has committed suicide, I just don't see that in the heart of God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, totally agree. So it was interesting because in that live feed thing I was telling you guys about with Greg Laurie's church and when you had that guy trolling everybody, people were getting upset. So I tried to take one for the team and I direct messaged the guy to try to distract him from like commenting on the feed. (laughs) So we just got in this conversation. I ended up talking to him for way longer than I should have. My wife was a little bummed. She's like, why are you talking to this guy? But uh, yeah, it was crazy because the, the mindset he was coming from was like, the Bible says that you need to endure until the end. And the way he looked at suicide was almost like it was the person making the ultimate rejection of Jesus and God. And it was like his view of suicide was someone basically giving the finger to God and saying, I don't want you. I want to, I want to go to hell. And it was just insane. It was blowing my mind. And you know, the place he was coming from, and and I'm just rehashing this because I want people to understand where some people's mindsets are. But, you know, he was talking about how if you commit suicide, you don't have a chance to repent. And so then I asked the guy, I was like, okay, so if you tell a lie and then get hit by a truck and you don't have a time to repent, what happens to you? And he was like, oh, well, I'd be fine because, you know, Jesus is death, you know, covers all my sins. And I was like, well, then why, why doesn't it apply to suicide? Like, yes, it's a very big sin. Yes, it has extremely huge consequences, but why is that sin greater than your sin? And uh, yeah, he just kept talking to me in circles and, and quoting King James verses at me left and right. And I was just like, all right, cool, man. <laughs> but uh, yeah, in the end, it was just like, it was frustrating because I realized how many people feel this way and how many people have this faulty understanding where it just really limits the grace of God. You know, to, to me, you know, I've seen Jesus forgive people who are on death row, like people who are murderers. I've heard those stories. And if Jesus can forgive a murderer, why wouldn't he be able to forgive somebody who, who even murdered themselves? Like, why do we, why do we want to limit his grace? Yeah. His grace is unlimited and pervasive and covers so much, all of our imperfections and 
choices that are contrary to his plan, his will, his heart, his design. And so, yeah, so good. Wes, we're, we're going to wrap this up. I just want to ask you before we leave, is there any final encouragement you'd want to give directly to the listeners of somebody who maybe is listening to this and they clicked on this link because they themselves are struggling with depression, anxiety, or maybe even suicidal thoughts? What would you want to leave them with? Yeah, I would say hard things are hard. So... N- what you're going through is difficult, is challenging, it's painful, but God is real and has given us hope and is present with us. And there are, there's hope rooted in our relationship with God. There's practical means to help you to work through and process what you're going through. I would say, talk to somebody. Talking is kind of a springboard toward healing and find help. Maybe that's a friend that you begin to talk to, a parent, somebody in your family, a pastor, or even getting a professional counselor. All those are great avenues to begin to share what you're going through. In no way should anybody minimize what you're going through. It's hard. It's painful. But there is hope and help and encouragement to navigate what you are experiencing. If you need help as far as just carrying on these discussions, you can listen to my podcast, Better Days Podcast, where I talk about all different types of suffering and mental health conditions. So if if that would be a source of help and encouragement, I'd love for you to listen as well. Uh, but reach out, talk, feel, don't suppress what you're going through and find hope, help, healing, because it is available. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So good. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Good Lion Podcast. Man, it was so good to have Wes on the show to talk about a really serious issue, but I really think that Wesley covered it with so much grace and truth. It was so good having him on the show. If you want to know more about Wes, Wesley Town is a pastor and speaker who is currently focusing his efforts on speaking and teaching on suffering and mental health. Check out his website, wesleytown.com. That's Wesley and then town with an E. On his website, you can find more about him and you can get him to come speak at your church. Wesley is the host of the Better Days podcast. Better Days is a podcast about mental health and suffering and what it means to be a human and follower of Jesus. Wesley also has this really cool thing called Better Days Talks which is a one-day mini-conference about mental health and suffering. He travels around to different churches to host these talks, where you can learn more about what the Bible says about mental health and suffering, anxiety, depression, stress, how to relate to and help others, ways that you can be mentally and emotionally healthy, and much, much more. So if you want to get Wesley to come and speak at your church, or if you want to schedule a Better Days talk with him to have him come out to your church and lead one of these Better Days talks, check out his website, wesleytown.com. On the next episode, Brian Higgins, my co-host, is going to be talking us through the importance of confession in Christianity. It's going to be a really good episode. Brian has a lot of great material planned. I'll be there too to ask Brian questions. I am really excited. So please join us for that episode. It's going to be great. Hey, if you like our show... 
take a moment to review this show. Go on Apple Podcast, type in The Good Lion Podcast, find our show, it's the red one with the lion on it, and leave us a review. It means so much and it helps people discover us. We would seriously appreciate it so much. If you want to find out more about what's going on with Good Lion, check out our website, goodlion.io. You can find all of our past episodes, not just of our show, but of all the different shows on the network. So be sure to check that out. And you can also look at our Instagram, which is just goodlion.io again, at goodlion.io. The Good Lion Podcast is produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and Brian Higgins. We are a ministry of CGN Calvary Global Network. If you like what we do, you can support us. Go to our website, goodlion.io slash support. You can send a donation through our sending church, Calvary Chapel Vista. Or if you want, you can check out our new patron page. It's just patron.com slash goodlionpod. Check it out. And if you like us, send us some support. Anything helps. Our goal is just to continue to make Christ-centered content to bless as many people as we can. Thanks for listening. And until next time, this is Aaron signing off.